Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Hello and welcome to Sunday Night Conversations brought to you by D1Baseball.com. I am your host, Michael Patrick Rooney. I want to start with a special thank you to our presenting sponsor, Netting Pros. Netting Pros specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting and padding for college baseball programs all around the country. The next time your field or facility needs something new, whether that be netting, wall padding, L screens, or ball carts, make sure you check out our friends at Netting Pros. Say this every week. These guys are awesome. Their products are awesome. Um, you know, it's just really cool to be able to do business with people who are best in class and also really, really care about our sport. So thanks to our, our guys at Nenning Pros. Um, before I introduce our guest for the uninitiated, uh, Sunday Night Conversations, we're just having college baseball conversations. Uh, a few years ago, it was a, a, a tool to meet some of the volunteer coaches. And now, thankfully, we don't even have volunteer coaches in college baseball, which is really good. Uh, last well, year, we, you. It's all thanks that, to you. No, no, I can't take credit for that. So, And this year's just been fun. We've just kind of – I've picked themes. Like a couple weeks ago, we did um, the guys uh, at Ross Kivett and Mike Clement and Blair DeBoard, who were part of the 2013 Kansas State Big 12 Champs team. Last week, we did TJ Bruce and Travis Jewett, who are really unique. You know, they, these are guys that were – prominent assistant coaches have a national championship ring have been head coaches now they're back to being assistant coaches um this week we're really pumped up you can see my guest is Corey mascara from wake forest division uh, d1baseball.com assistant coach of the year uh and and moose i've got i i told you before we hit record i've got like seven questions for you if we get to four of them i'm going to consider that like like we've really crushed my list but yeah, um, so here here in the office we yes. like to bust chops quite a bit. Oh, and I love that. one of the things we say here is if I go on a rant, it's called getting moosed. And everyone makes it like they always break my chops on it a little bit. So I love that. Coach Walter, your boss, Tom Walter, I th- I would imagine he's sneaky awesome at busting chops. Western oh, yeah. PA guy. He's, he's really skilled. Um, he knows good. He's got good comedic timing. Um, yeah, he's good at it. What, uh, Matt Wessinger. Um, our former volunteer now, obviously paid. Thanks Did he play St. John's? Was he a St. John's guy? Yeah, he was a stud, all American there. Um, captain, all time hits leader at St. John's really oh, good wow. player. Um, he's really good at it. And coach Salento, uh, is relentless. So there's really no, there's really no rest for the weary here. We, uh, we say you have to have thick skin because Love that. you're going to, you're going to get it from all angles, you know, beautiful. Hey, let's do this, Moose. For um, and we're gonna go. We're gonna go, Coach Moose, for the for the uh, for the pod here. So, Moose, let's do this. Take us through your resume, just from a bullet point standpoint, like where you grew up. Don't don't forget to include the Philly part because that is the center of the universe. So, where you grew up, you know, where you played, where you coached. Let's start there. So, I was born in Central PA, and then my dad's family, most of them, are from uh, and still do to this day live outside of Philadelphia. Um, so they live in like Norristown, 
Lansdale, Methacton, Horsham, mm -hmm. that area. Um, when I was eight years old, we moved to Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, I went to high school there and uh, I, I played at Siena College. That's where Coach Chalenta recruited me. Um, that's how we got to know each other. I met my wife there. Um, and then I transferred to Franklin Pierce. Um, Billy at the time was at New Orleans with Coach Walter. So that's how it kind of comes full circle. And I played at Franklin Pierce where I met Scotty Loazzo and I played for Jason King. Really enjoyed my experience there. Um, it's where I really solidified wanting to get into college coaching. And my first job was at Southern New Hampshire with Scotty Loazzo in my hometown. Um, Scotty's like a brother to me. And then from there, I, I coached at Binghamton for a year, went back to Southern New Hampshire. Um, and then uh, Scott Brown put me in touch with Ed Blankmeyer. I was really lucky to get that job at a young age. I definitely had no business being the uh, pitching coach at St. John's at that time in my life and replacing Scott Brown. I had no idea what I was doing. Ed Blankmeyer put up with me and uh, he helped me a lot. And then uh, from there, I went to Maryland, worked with Rob Vaughn. And then now, now I'm here. Billy kind of connected me with Coach Walter and I ended up at Wake Forest. So that's that's kind of the whole trajectory. I guess. That's awesome. I didn't, I didn't, I never knew the Bill Salento connection to you at Siena. Like I just, I, I assumed you got to Wake Forest because obviously you had done really well at St. John's, you had done really well at Maryland and that, that it just felt like you would naturally bump into those guys. I had no idea it was Billy C that connected you guys. Oh yeah. That was, that was my dude. That's who I committed to on the phone and called and said I was coming to school. And then he took the job at new Orleans before I got there. So I never oh, actually no. got to play for him. But <laughs> Oh, but that's he, great. Because of him, I got to meet my wife. So thank thank goodness for that, right? That's right. Well done. Well done, Coach Salento. Hey, tell me about um like uh, you know, Ed Blankmeyer is like a hero of mine. Like I think college like, when he retired, I was happy for him, sad for us. You know, um half of me I think still hopes he gets back into college baseball somehow. But you know, I m more importantly, I hope he's happy doing whatever he's doing. But um what was that like going to you, you kind of alluded to it like Hey, Scott Brown goes from St. John's to Vandy. St. John's has been this incredible program. I think the year before you got there, they had just come off a super regional where, That's right. I mean, they had Arizona. I did that super regional. They had Arizona beat in that first game. I mean, that, that, that things, you know, Arizona wins the national title that year. Like that things could have really uh, spun a little bit differently there. But what was that experience like at St. John's working for blanks? It was, it was everything really, to be honest with you. Um, He's, he's, I can't even put into words how awesome he is. Um, first and foremost, like he, he was, he gave me really valuable feedback. Um, mm -hmm. He allowed me to work and he gave me a lot of autonomy to work, but he was, he gave very precise feedback. He was critical in the sense that, you know, he knew what he wanted it to look like and he had high standards and high expectations. So he would give me very valuable feedback and he wouldn't sugarcoat anything. And, but he'd also let me work. He didn't micromanage me. He let me go. So I don't know if there's any more you could ever ask for a head coach, especially when you're young, of someone that's going to guide you and give you a lot of feedback, but at the same time, not stand over you and um, tell you how it needs to be done. It was more like, hey, I, I need you to do this. Go do it. Mm -hmm. And then I'd do it. And he'd be like, all right, here's what I thought you could have done better. Go do it again. You know, and then. Because of that, I learned a lot from him, and he's he's got so much baseball acumen and wisdom 
you learn so much about the game. Like when I when I left St. John's to go to Maryland, I kind of didn't even realize how much I absorbed from him. Um, just from being around him daily, he has so much baseball feel. I'll tell this funny story. He's heard me say this story a bunch, so this will kind of encapsulate everything in my time and experience there. So when I first got there, I was I never had called a game before. I never managed a game. When I was at Binghamton, we let the players do it. When I was at Southern New Hampshire, Scotty Loazzo did it. So I, I had coached for three years at the college level, and I get you know I'm coming off you know they're coming off the super regional in 2012. It's a pretty darn good program, and I get there and I'm 25 years old, and blanks like you're gonna call a game, and I'd never been more nervous doing anything in my whole life. <laughs> I'd never done it before. I, I I like was trying to learn how to do scouting reports. I was completely overmatched and overwhelmed, and I made so many mistakes. And I like. For that whole first two years, I, I was like every day I'd make a mistake. I was unsure. I didn't have conviction. And he has this way of busting chops where he's telling he's doing it in a funny manner and he's telling you what you need to do to get better. But he's also like telling the truth. And so it really sticks with you. And so one year we were playing. Actually, you mentioned T.J. Bruce earlier when we were talking. We we're playing University of Nevada and T.J. Bruce's first year as a head coach at Nevada. And we're staying at a hotel in Reno, and and after the after the game, we go out to dinner. It's it's me, Blanks, uh, Bone, who's now the head coach of St. John's, and and Sue, Blank's wife. And we're sitting there, and we lose a tight game, and Blanky's like, Corey, Corey, Corey. He's like, you got no feel. He's like, you got no feel when you're calling the game. Me, I had feel. Brownie, he had feel. You, no feel. No feel. You got no feel. I can't watch it anymore. Well, well blanks. What do I gotta do? Like, how do I get there? I don't know. You got no feel though. So no feel. It's terrible. Sue's at dinner. Eddie, take it easy on him, Eddie. It's okay. No, I can't watch it. He's got no feel, Sue. It's unbelievable. <laughs> got no timing. Don't know what we're doing. Oh, I'm a low. Like, and that <laughs> that, so that conversation. I'm sitting there and I'm like. Is like 26 and i'm like this guy's a legend he's a hall of famer and like i don't know if there's ever been a conversation that's impacted me more in my career than that um and i told him this like 15 times like he's heard it his son's heard it i worked with his son i think i told brownie this story at one point but i remember like he's telling me that i'm like he's right like i'm, just, I'm terrible like I, I i don't i don't think three pitches ahead like i don't have a feel for what's going on i'm, I'm you know and so then from that day forward, that became my number one like pet peeve is like, I'm going to get good at calling a game. And then what really helped me was synergy, the advent mm -hmm. of synergy. Because at the time, like, if we wanted to watch a game, like, you had to get lucky that it was on like CBS Sports and like someone had to tape it and sure. it was, like a complete like production to make it happen. So you're always just going, the scattered reports you used to always go off after were like whatever somebody else said. You know what I mean? So you'd be like, you know, hard in. And I'd always like laugh, like hard in. Like, what is this? Like, oh, my guy's throwing 85. Is your guy 92? Like, what's hard in, you know? Right. And so, like, I just wasn't very confident. I didn't make quick decisions. I didn't read swings very well. And so when I got to Maryland, the first thing we did was we purchased Synergy. We were one of the, the early adapters. It was like one of the few pieces of technology we had when I was at Maryland. But we got it in the infancy stages. And I just 
I just started watching like 30, 40 hours a week because I was, I was so like blanks was in my mind all the time. Like being like, I have no feel. And so, you know, I credit him with being able to manage a game decently now and being pretty good at it because he was always on me to do it better. And so many of the concepts that I employ come from him, you know, from using the stopwatch all the time. Like I, I remember like one of the first days of practice, I showed up and I was a pitching coach and where's your stopwatch and i'm like uh yeah. should practice like why do i need a stopwatch like, go back to the locker room and get your stopwatch and it was like a 150 right. yard run back to the locker room i was like okay coach yep gonna go get it you know but just little things like that like he would he didn't scream and yell he was he was um he let you go but he had expectations and he had standards and he didn't budge on them and you just knew like it was blanks he's the goat like you gotta you gotta get on his level you know, yeah. so I can't even imagine like coaching college baseball today without having spent five years with him at that time in my life. You know, I, there's so many things I think about and do daily that I learned from him. You know, mm. I, I, so I think the world of him. Like, I don't even, yeah. I could talk this whole hour about Ed Blankmeyer. That's how much I love him. That's such a great story. That's so great. I'm going to pivot off of I, the, the whole game calling thing is so intriguing to me. I got to do it one year as a junior college coach and same thing, like just felt I, I'll never forget. I called Bill Moziello and I was like, Mo, what? You know, he's like he's a baseball savant to me. I was like, Mo, any like I need a really like Cliff Notes version of calling a game. And he's like uh, pitch forwards with no one on base runner in scoring position, go backwards. I was like, okay, that works. I mean, yeah. at least it was something, but, uh, obviously at the level you're doing it at, it's, it's a different animal. Hey, Moose, let me ask you this. So to me, one of your real unique strengths is you've got this old school, um, you know, like the, the coaches that I played for and coached under and, you know, against, were those that was the old ver, the old school guys where they when they entered a room you felt it right like that was the old school version like that charisma um they were dynamic uh and, and so you have that gift right like when you when you come in a room the room moves but you also now have incredible command of the technology side you know, the analytics the obviously what you guys are doing at Wake Forest is is world class so, so it just, that's so unique to me. Like, I feel like it's almost always one or the other. And then somebody's just kind of clinging to the, the area of strength that they've got. What was there? A, I'm imagining that you're the beginning of your career. You kind of were cut from the old school cloth and you've had to develop into the technology side. Was there a moment in time that kind of turned the worm for you there or like a flashpoint or how did that, how did you become this person that is, is I would say very good in both areas? Well, yeah, to your point, like, I think the old school kind of mentality, uh, I played for Jason King, and I think the world of him as well. And he has that old school mentality. He's competitive. He's a really good practice coach. Um, he gets you to play hard. He has a presence. Scotty Loazzo at Southern New Hampshire, the new uh, top assistant at Penn State, um, he's the same way. He's like, he's very dynamic. Um mm -hmm. And that's all I ever knew. And then Blanky's that way. So that's just kind of like all I knew. Another guy that influenced me greatly was Ryan Herba, who's a recruiting coordinator at Binghamton. Um, he's super tactical and thoughtful on how he does everything. And he also has a very similar presence. There was a volunteer assistant there named Ed Foley, who was like a baseball like lifer. And 
you know, he'd coached for like, he's still coaching, but he's been doing it forever. So all those guys kind of like, that's what I knew. Like it was old school baseball, you know, play catch at a high level, like care about the little things, you know, like hold runners, um, be tactical, like, and, and play the game the right way. And that's what I always thought it was. And then when I was at Maryland, um, that was like, you know, working with Rob Vaughn and Anthony Papio, who are now at Alabama, and Megan Kane, who was our director of ops at the time, we really got into like the psychology of it all. We really started to get into, you know, visualization, growth mindset, leadership stuff. That kind of was like our thing. Like we really got involved at that and started reading a ton of books on it and made everything about that, which I think is super valuable. So now you got like the old school style and then kind of this new age philosophical like way to think about things. And towards the end of my time there, like I had a really good friend who's now at Iowa, pitching coach Sean McGrath, um, who at the time was at Elon and he was just getting into pro ball with the Mariners. And he was, he's one of my best friends. I talked to him daily and he was really into the analytics. And I felt like, I felt truthfully, I felt really insecure because we didn't have track man. We didn't have any of this stuff. And he's like every day, like spitting out all this data and everything. And I'm like, Dude, I don't even know what he's talking about. I need a Rosetta Stone to have a conversation. And so I would, you know, I got really into visualization and goal setting. And I think about all the time, like, I really want this. So I actually, I tried to leverage the us getting technology while I was at Maryland. I set up meetings with the Orioles and their player development department. We were trying to do a joint venture to get a biomechanics lab at Maryland. Um, we, tr I had, I was trying to get with donors to get track man and, and different things like that. So I was super intrigued by it. Um, but I just felt inadequate because I never had access to it. So I remember like calling Brownie a bunch and asking him questions and everybody would talk in terms of like track man numbers. And I felt like they were speaking a different language and I, I hated that feeling. Um, so that's where my interest really peaked in it. Um, and then during COVID, I would get on a lot of Zoom calls with people to try to better understand things. And when I got this opportunity to come to Wake Forest, it was really cool because they have like every bell and whistle you could ever imagine here. Um, but I wanted to try to figure out how we can make it more actionable and less theoretical. So we just tried to apply like all the old school mentality of baseball, watching the game, paying attention to the game, and then trying to see if we can pull numbers and data out of it as opposed to how I feel like the majority of the baseball world looks at it is like oh this these numbers are good no like what's good is the game the ball never lies the ball is always right right so like watch mm -hmm. like did they swing and miss are they off the barrel did you make an out and out that's the game right the game is always what matters the analytics are trying to get you to have cheat codes to better perform in the game and too often times we look at the numbers as good and it's like, no, the game's good. The numbers are helping us have a better understanding of the game. So that's kind of what we tried to do here. And that was the philosophy that we brought to the analytics team. And then what happens is like when you see the numbers in front of you every day and you know baseball and you're forged on like understanding baseball, like as it is, it makes it way easier to understand the numbers. You know, another thing we did a lot of was we like put all of the every data point we could think of into some type of percentile rank within the ACC and SEC. This allowed us to have better clarity on what actually was important and what we needed to quantify. One of the things I talk about a lot with our analytics team 
is like so much of what we what we derive from understanding analytics comes from the pro model, the pro game. But the college game and the pro game are not the same. They're just and it, yes, it's baseball, and there's a lot of similarities, but it's not the same game. It's different strike zones. It's different styles. It's different coaching philosophies. It's different levels of talent. It's different ballparks. It's different, um, you know, it, the whole thing's different. Uh, and, and so, like, if we go out here with the same analytics on two different styles of game, it doesn't matter. I'll give you an example. In the pro game, um, they're, they, they really downgrade gyros, sliders, and cutters. Now, the Yankees are starting to throw cutters more and more and more. Um, but, like, for a while, they were kind of demonized, just like sinkers were, like, not cool anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. In the college game, they performed the best. Hard gyro sliders and cutters perform excellently. So, like, you have all these pitching coaches out there, like, well, we, we got to have a sweeper. We got to have a sweeper. Everything's got to be a sweeper because the sweeper is the craze. But it's like, if you're paying attention to the game and a kid can't land a sweeper and he can't manipulate a sweeper, why would we have him try to throw it? Right. You're trying to get out, throw what he gets, what's going to get him out. And then, like, once you dive into the numbers of the college game, you'll understand that, like, it actually does perform, you know? And so, that's really what we try to do with the numbers here is like, look at the college game. I could care less what they're doing in pro ball. I want to win a national championship. I'm not like, I'm not concerned with making the next prospect. Now, the funny thing is prospects get made when you win. And the beauty of winning is like, uh, this is something I took from Jason King. My coach at uh, Franklin Pierce is like, you can't control the win or loss, but you can control the mentality to be a winner. And I think it's the greatest way to look at it is like, yeah, we don't, we don't, the results, we don't control them. Right. Like I have no regrets how our season went. Everyone, everyone says like, Oh, it didn't go your way. I'm like, I don't care. Like we did everything in our power. It didn't work out, whatever. Like I'm not losing sleep over it because we control the process to be a winner, you know? And it's the same thing for, for me. Like if, if you want to make a prospect, get him to learn how to be a winner period. And that means like have good habits, like, have good preparation, um, have a positive mindset, uh, learn their body, learn how they, you know, do things. And then their strategy will dictate and change as they go. They'll be more moldable. They'll be more adaptable. They'll be more adjustable. Right. And I think sometimes in player development, we look at like what they need to be, to be a pro, you know what they need to be. They need to be well-rounded. Yeah. They need to be able to handle adversity. They need to be understanding, understand what it takes to work in a team setting to be a winner. That's what they need. And so I don't really care what the pro game does. I could give, I, I got to watch my language, but I could care less, you know? Right. Um, I care about like, how are we the best version of ourselves? How do we control our controllables? And, and, you know, this is a, this is something that Steven shock and I talk about all the time, but are we having fun doing it? Like it's so, it sounds like so corny, like have fun. Look, like, if I didn't like doing this, there's a lot of other things I could do and make a lot more money. I'm finally now making a lot of money, but like I'm in the 15th year of doing it. I feel like if I was doing something else for 15 years, I'd have a lot more money in my bank account than where I'm at now. So like, I didn't do this to make money. I do. I did this because I enjoy it. I felt a void in my career of having this type of um, coaching. And then I found it. And it meant a lot to me when I when I met Jason King and Scott Loazzo. 
And I felt like, yeah, like that's kind of what I want to do. They seem pretty happy. They seem pretty competitive. They seem pretty passionate. Like I want to be like them and I think I can do this, you know, and yeah. that's kind of how it all worked out. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's uh, man, that, that, that's a really way, that's a really great way to kind of summarize that whole thing and the blend of the two things. And yeah, you're right. Like you, you know, the other thing I have a real job now and the other thing that you'd notice, you know, when I got out of coaching is uh, the weekends, you know, like it, you, the, the, I know, I know that coaches know they work hard, but I don't know that they really know unless they have a person in their life that has a real job where it's just the hours are incredible. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our discussion to hear a couple ads from our sponsors. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all handpicked from family farms, then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, so Moose, let's do this. I'm going to ask you about a couple um, things from last year's team. It's funny when you were talking a little bit about last year's team, Travis Jewett and TJ Bruce, when we spoke last week, we were talking about how some of the great all-time college baseball teams didn't even make it to Omaha, you know, like 2008 Arizona State, 2013 Cal State Fullerton, 2013 Vanderbilt, 2021 Arkansas, 2022 Tennessee. Now you guys made it and you're in the final four. I want to ask you, I want to start with Josh Hartle. So, you know, Josh Hartle, if there, if we had a comeback player of the year in college baseball, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, is it him or Charlie Condon last year? You know, Charlie Condon, just a flat out red shirt. Um, you know, Josh Hartle goes from a five plus ERA to, you know, basically a first team all American type of season here. Here's the question I want to ask, but I, you can take this wherever you want. The question I'm asking myself is, did Josh Hartle need to get his, you know, his brains kicked in his freshman year to blossom into this, you know, first team all American type guy, his sophomore year, or, cause I, I think sometimes that's what we think with the analytics is, oh, if we, you know, but he had it both years, right? If we, mm-hmm. if we could just like give him this, then he never has to experience that adversity or is that adversity part of his journey that he needed to be so outstanding this year? 
So I'm going to take something that our lab coordinator, director of player development, Mike McFerrin, says all the time. But it happened because it happened and it needed to happen, right? So like I'm a big believer in that mentality. Like life gives us what we need all the time, right? Mm -hmm. and, and here's the reality. I was actually talking with Josh's advisor this morning, um, Garrett Gore, and uh, we, were, we were having this conversation. But I've never seen so much buildup on a kid in my life. Like when he got to college, they were like, potential number one overall pick. And what's so impressive about Josh Hartle is he has all this hype and he has all this buildup and he's from Winston and he chooses to stay home and go to Winston. And when he stepped foot on campus his freshman year, he was like 86 to 89 with a dead zone fastball, a really nice breaking ball and a changeup that he would yank. And by every way that you would classify those pitches, like that's not a dude. In the ACC on the weekend, that's by no means is that a dude. That's like a, a middle reliever, maybe. Spins mm -hmm. a good breaking ball, cool. Like, and we're like, all right, yeah, you're you're the chosen one. You're starting on Saturday as a freshman in the ACC. And yeah, he did get his teeth kicked in for sure. But like how well he handled it, still competing, you know, still he still won seven games, you know, like, and it wasn't awesome. By no means did he dominate. But he handled it like with real grace. And there was things that we needed to learn along the way. His, his, his entire development plan changed going into the last weekend of the year against NC State. Uh, Billy Salento, we were playing NC State and they had like their whole lineup was right handed. They had, you know, they had Tommy White before he went to LSU. They had Lou James Groover and they had a bunch of other guys. Uh, Brown was really good. They had all these really good right handed hitters. And we knew that in order for us to get in the NCAA tournament, we had to win that series. And we hadn't won a series at NC State in like, I don't even know when. We had never swept them in, the, in 108 years of baseball at Wake Forest. And so we're going into this series and it's like Wednesday and Billy's like, hey, Moose, you know, like, right? You're hitting like 380 off of Josh Hartle. I'm like, yeah, Billy, I know. I understand. He's like, we got to do something different. The whole lineup's right-handed. I'm like, yeah, I know. You got any ideas? He's like, well, you talked about teaching him a cutter. Like, maybe next fall we should teach him a cutter. I'm like, screw next fall. I'm teaching him a cutter today. And he's like, are you sure that's a good idea? I'm like, we got to burn the boats. We don't have another choice. Right. So we taught him a cutter that day, and it changed everything. Um, and then when we came into the fall the next year, um, myself, Mike, our analytics team, we looked at, man, this cutter performed really well in the two outings that he had at the end of the year. And we actually do this when we're talking to recruits. Like he had like a six and a half ERA pre-cutter, post-cutter in the two starts, his ERA was a one five. And that's what brought it down to that five one two. Cause he threw like, I want to say 10, 11 innings on like maybe a run or something like that. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was, it was pretty good. And um, so we're like, we, we should craft his entire arsenal off this pitch. So we made some changes to where he stands in the rubber. We made some changes to like his direction, his location strategy. And we kind of morphed everything around that cutter. And then um, he got stronger. We, we did a lot of things with his delivery, you know, trying to get his backside to rotate on time, getting his elbow up um, and, and the backside because his elbow was low at push strike. So there was a lot of things that cleaned up there and it helped him to throw about a mile or two harder than he did the year previously. 
He had more angle. The cutter got really good. The breaking ball dramatically improved with the angle. Um, and we changed kind of his arsenal. And the cool thing is, to your point about, like, did he need to get kicked in the teeth? This is very much like Rhett Louder. When you go out and you pitch the whole year as a starter, as a freshman in the ACC, without stuff, and you have to figure out how to compete, the following year, when you have more stuff, you're so confident. Because you're like, wait a minute. Like, I just went through this gauntlet with a butter knife. You know, I just went through this fight with a butter knife. And now I'm going in the same fight with a rocket launcher, some hand grenades. Like, I got some weapons that I can attack with now. And I survived with a butter knife. And so to your point, yeah, I think it's all that. Like, I think we, we had to change his arsenal a little bit. We had to do things in his delivery. I, I've often said this, Josh Hartle's superpower, because I think everybody has them. You just got to find out what they are. His superpower is that he handled all the hype. So much hype. I've never seen it. And I don't even know that it was warranted. But he handled it with such grace. He's as humble as it gets. He's as hardworking as it gets. He's as good a teammate as you've ever seen. Um, and he dealt with that pressure, which is a lot. And he keeps getting better. And he's so hungry to get better. And honestly, I'm watching him get better right in front of my eyes right now. Like, I think he's going to maybe take a next step even more this year um, because he's so committed to what he's doing. He's so committed to his process, you know, and that's that's what makes him Josh Hartle. Like, I don't think many people can deal with that kind of hype as a 13, 14 year old. He was ranked in the top 10 in the country. He's a poster boy for Team USA. Like, your brain's not developed at 13. Right. Like, most people that are that hyped at that age, they they kind of hit up. They think they're they think they've arrived. And he, he's never thought that. Like, I love coaching Josh Hartle. And everyone that meets the kid loves him. He is awesome with a capital A. Like, tell awesome, baby. You know what I mean? Like, that's what he is, <laughs> you know? Hey, what about um, when you when – you, so I'm thinking about the week of NC State. So you guys you, – you get in the bullpen with Josh Hartle and you, you, you know – you start working on a cutter, like he starts throwing it and immediately you're like, Oh man, like this, this could be it. Or you're like, that's interesting. And now well, let's so see. He, he was on the side of the baseball already. Like his spin efficiencies weren't very good. Like we were trying to like do a seam shift and wake two seam. We were trying whatever we could. He was cutting his change up already. So he was already predisposed to it. So we were like, screw it. Let's just lean into what he's already doing. Let's yeah. stop trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Let's just lean into it. Now the beauty of it was, he had never thrown it in a game ever. And the NC State coaching staff is very good. They're very good coaches. I respect them immensely. Um, they all do a wonderful job with scouting and preparation. So they had this, like, lockdown scouting report on him. And he he rips 40 cutters in the game. He's never thrown one in his life. And I saw those guys that summer, like, guy, did he, when did he learn to cut it? I'm like, about two days before it start. They're like, oh, it makes sense because we didn't see one all year. I'm like, yeah. So that, that played into our hand then. Like, I, I don't know that he would have had the same success. He kind of rabbit punched him in that game because, like, you know, he came out of nowhere and snuck up on him because uh, he hadn't done it. You know what I mean? Sure. But then, like, once he started to, like, really understand how to utilize that pitch, his entire arsenal was kind of shaped off that pitch, you know? Yeah. How do you see hitters react to that pitch? Like the cutter is always, I, I just always perceive it as a pitch that hitters can't keep, keep it on the barrel, right? Like it's, yeah. you think it's going to be here and 
so yeah, what is is it that or is it and then it just changes the whole way they're approaching every part of the arsenal? Yeah, well again, his is he has a really extreme horizontal release side. You know, I think he's like a three five release side, which is the the highest up until this this new kid on our team right now. But up until that, it's the most extreme average release side in college baseball in the last seven years, you know. Does that mean sidearm like it's way out on the side? So or what does that yeah, mean? Yeah, so his his release side's three foot five. So it works from the center of the plate and he's three feet, five inches is, is like his release side away. Wow. So it's behind a left-handed hitter. So when he throws a cutter at 88, 89, 90 miles an hour, and it's anywhere from two to three horizontal, and it's like on that zero one line, you know, that feels like it's eight or nine inches of sweep. It's not, but it gets played more on that side. And, um, and he throws it really hard. So that pitch is so unique because there's no other pitch like it, right? You know, I, I talk, I, when I talk to scouts, I have this conversation constantly, but we're constantly trying to quantify what's good and what's not good. But if you could do something at a high level and a high level of consistency that no one else really does, it's good because hitters don't know how to react. Hitters <laughs> build up a mental Rolodex in their mind of what they see over time. They constantly see the same thing. They see batting practice every day from the same release slot. They put the hack attack machine in the same spot from the same angle. Most pitchers throw from a similar release height and similar release slot and angle. There's a generally a specific vertical approach angle that most hitters face. So if you could do something that's abnormal to what they see visually, no matter how much they know it's coming, it's really hard to account for especially if you get them out of the game and bring somebody else in after them that looks vastly different. So I think oftentimes we don't value uniqueness enough. Yeah. This is another Ed Blankmeyer thing. He used to say all the time, I want all the animals in the zoo. And it's, it's a great line because it's like, I tell people this all the time. Like, yo, if you, everyone wants to see the lion, but if you go to the lion on every exhibit, like by the 15th exhibit, you're like, I get it. It's a lion. Cool. The mane's nice. It's big. Yeah. King of the jungle. We love it. But like, I'd like to see like a, a giraffe, maybe an elephant. Like how about the rhino? It's the same thing with the pitching staff, man. If like everyone's throwing 95 with like steep ride. Okay, cool. Like eventually you're going to get on time and steep ride. That's what we're going to see on a hack attack machine. So why don't we have some different angles? Why don't we have some different slots? You know? And it's funny because. When you watch big league baseball, some of the most successful guys are, are unique. So, like, why aren't we looking for unique? Why aren't we developing unique? Why is it always velocity? Why is it always the sweeping breaking ball? Why is it always the trend that's cool right now? Yep. You know, like, and, and I think everybody has an identity. Personality-wise, they have an identity. Their pitch repertoire, they have an identity. They move a certain way. It's our job as coaches to figure out what makes them special optimize it and get them to believe in it. You want guys to have confidence, tell them they're good at something, make them believe they're good at something and then build them up and then quantify it, make it objective. Like, Hey, you're doing this really well. You're not doing this very well. You do this really well. You're poor at this, but you're good at this. If you make things objective constantly, people will respond. If they have any competitive nature in their body whatsoever, they will respond, you know? Yeah. Man, that's good. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. I, I heard David Berg's name recently, and 
you know, everyday Dave, you know, arguably all-time greatest reliever ever at UCLA. And yet still, we just don't see that many submarine guys. I know they don't grow on trees, but it's just interesting that that he had all that success and it just, it's not being mimicked. Hey, let me, let me pivot us this way, Moose. So, you know, last year, your Wake Forest team and you coached in this game, one of the greatest games in the history of the College World Series, the Thursday night game, you and LSU, you guys have gone out 2-0, and they beat you, and now you're, it's basically play for the finals, and it's going to be Paul Skeens and Rhett Lauder. We're all excited about the game, but, you know, like, you, you just, in, in the back of your mind as a fan, which is really what we are in the media, you know, you're basically like, oh, there's no way this can live up to the hype, right? Like, we're, and it was unbelievable. Like, it was just, you know, louder. We were worried about louder because, you know, he's not as big as Skeens, although he's way bigger than people think. And then, um, to me, and then and then with Skeens, it's like, you know, he's been carrying the train for, like, six months. Like, can he still do it? And those two kids were just, you know, it was unreal. One, one of the best games I ever watched in my life. You're in the dugout. Like, what was that experience for you, like, you know, in the bullpen before the game, during the game? I, I'd love to hear about any moments that really stick out for you from that game. You know, I got to say, like, during that game, multiple times, I I said to myself, like, this game's sick. Like, this game's sick. awesome. Like, I kept saying it. Like, I remember, uh, like, there was, like, the TV, like, interview person kept walking. I don't remember her name or what her name was, but. Chris Budden, I bet you. Yeah. I kept saying to her, like, I was like, you're not, are you not entertained? This game's phenomenal. You know what I mean? Oh, like, I was like, I need my popcorn. I like, I, I like to keep it loose. Like, I'm, I'm, I think the game's fun. I think it should be played fun. I think all your preparation is where you put all your time and effort into. And I think if you prepare hard, like, you should have as much fun with it as possible. So that, I remember just kept thinking that over and over again. Um, I remember like thinking to myself, like, is Paul Skeens ever going to throw a ball? Like, I remember at one point, like the fourth inning, I was like, because it's funny, like, you know, a lot of people ask you, like, what's Paul Skeens like? And, you know, watching him live, it's like the fastball is really hard. You can't believe how hard he throws for as long as he does. And, you know, if you're into analytics, like truthfully, the analytics of his fastball aren't anything impressive. It's kind of steep. It's kind of dead zone but it's 99 miles an hour and he throws strikes relentlessly. So I just kept telling everybody like what's really unique about Paul Skeens. It's, it's so much velocity and it's so many strikes over and over again. And you just marvel at his consistency. You know, he was on like two days short rest throwing 125 pitches and like pitch 120 something was a hundred. You're like, what's going on? Like who does there's anybody on the planet that's doing that right now? You know, crazy. I've been in the show. Like it doesn't happen anywhere. And to do that and still pound the strike zone. That was really impressive to watch. Louder was vintage louder. You know, like I felt like he was throwing any pitch and any count. He was, it was like, they were, it was, I felt like they were just going back and forth pitch for pitch. I felt like it was like bird Jordan, like doing the, the McDonald's commercial was like off the backboard, off the ground, off the glass, nothing but net. Remember that commercial? Yeah, it was the best. That, that's what it felt like. It felt like, oh, you could do this, I'm gonna do this. You could do that, I'm gonna do this, you know? And um it was fun, you know, like um it didn't happen it didn't end up the way we wanted to, but I wouldn't change anything about it. I mean, ball bounces this way or that way, maybe it's different, maybe it's not. You know, it's there's so many things you hear about that game that they they make you chuckle. 
You know, like, for example, we hit six balls in a row, five of which were over 100 miles an hour. One was over 97 miles an hour. And every single ball was over a 75% hit probability. Oh, man. Six consecutive outs. Like, what? Like, how does that happen? Like, the, the, the sheer odds say that that's not going to happen, but it did. The first and third play with Merrick Houston bunting and Trey Morgan making a great play. I mean, it was a great play by Trey Morgan. But then you listen to the post game, and he's like, yeah, I was. I thought we were in a different bunk coverage. And you're like, <laughs> I was in a different bunk coverage and made, like, one of the greatest plays ever. And you're like, how Superman does that play. You know what I mean? And, it, and it, the bunt gets down, and if you watch the World Series around the dirt was really hard. There was a lot of balls that hit the dirt in the circle that bounced up. Trey Morgan got a double out of it the second game we played him. Earlier in that day, Jack Winnet came in to play for a hurt Nick Kurtz, and he made that really – like that jumped and made that play on Trey Morgan again that bounced off the dirt just like that. That ball bounces up just high enough for Trey to make that great play. There's so many variables, you know. We try to throw a slider out of the strike zone. We know that Tommy White swings first pitch at like a 53% clip, and we backed it up a little bit. Tommy White hit a tank. I mean, it's why it's his, it's his nickname is Tommy Tanks, you know. Like, no. There's so many different things that you look at and you say to yourself, oh, this could have happened, that could have happened. But it's baseball, you know what I mean? So I enjoyed it as a fan. I enjoyed how my guys play. I was proud of my guys. I was proud of our effort. Um, I've, I've lost no sleep over that game. Absolutely none. Because it's like, what are we going to do differently? You know what I mean? Like, it was just, it was a battle royale and it didn't go our way. They won. Yep. Yeah, whatever. You know what I mean? Even the bunt, like people, you know, the, the natural thing is to second guess the bunt call. But to me, it was like, it was, you know, Merrick Houston's a freshman and, you know, he's, he's, he's really in there for defense and, and, you know, like he could be a future offensive star, but he's playing yeah. because he's an elite defender. He's and a nine old guy. Yeah. Like, it keeps you out of a double like, play. Anybody that, anybody that questions the safety in that situation in the ninth inning of a zero, zero ball game, with Paul Skeens or whoever was on the bump. I don't remember if it was Thatcher Hurd, whoever. Thatcher Hurd, I think, yeah. But but it's your nine-hole guy with a runner on third, you know, and the game's on the line. Like, you need one run to win. I'm yeah. Good. And if then I was, Tommy Hollis hit a bullet right after that, too, right? Didn't he yeah, line yeah. out the left like he had a missile right the next at bat? Who, Merrick did or? No, Hawk, after Merrick's bunt. Yeah, he like may Hawk have. blistered a ball. So it's yeah. like, you know, if you're if you're Tom Walter managing the game, like you got what well, you kept yourself out of a double play. You got the big situation to Tommy Hawk. It took a all time great defensive play to keep that yeah. run off the board. Like, uh, yeah, it was it was just that's me, like, I, I've thought about that play multiple times. And look, if I'm a head coach someday and I'm in the same situation, I'm ripping that number every time. Like, I'm like, let's every go. Time. I'm, I, I haven't thought about it twice. I'm like, I think it's the right baseball play all day long. Um, knowing the circumstances didn't go our way, you know, yeah. whatever. No. Yeah. All time. Great game too. I mean, just like, I, yeah, I'll be thinking about that game in 25 years, you know, like it was just really incredible. Hey, let's wrap with this moose. So, so you could do something from the world series, but I'm thinking about you guys had such an interesting season last year, all time, great season for the school, um, you know, it, it's really the culmination of Wake Forest's program. They're in game three of a Super Regional in 2017 and then kind of lose their way a little bit. Then your first year, 2022, 
things are starting to click again. And then last year, just this, you know, it, it's basically LSU's the number one team in the country for a little bit. Then you guys ride that out uh, un, until Omaha. Was there a moment from last year's season, you know, just maybe the how dominant you were during the regular season, you know, like you guys, um, man, uh, my buddy Kendall Rogers, our friend Kendall Rogers had a great expression for, we were, we were doing a podcast after you guys had your regional and he's like, Wake Forest looked terrifying. And I'm like, oh my God, that's like the perfect word. That's exactly what that regional was. Like Wake Forest just wrecked that regional. Now the super regional was, you know, like that, that was like a classic super regional, right? Like it was less comfortable. Like Alabama really, really was, was up for it. Um, yeah, but, first, but I don't want to steer the jury. The first oh, so, go ahead. Was a great ball. The first game against Alabama was a great ball game. Yep. I think it was like 5-4. We had a questionable third strike call to end the game. Pays to be home, I guess, you know. Yep. But the second game, we kind of like the fans got into it a little bit. And, they, you know, I think we got comfortable in all, our ballpark. You know, we definitely play a little bit of a homer dome. And the wind was blowing out that day. And truthfully, I think we just felt more comfortable playing in front of our home crowd in that environment. And it kind of yeah. got out of hand. But that first game was a was an absolute battle, you know. So, um, but I kind of cut you off. What was your question? There? No, the question is like, do you have a moment that you that really stands out for you, like regular season, regional, super regional, as, as far as yeah? And I don't want to steer the jury any more than that. Like, what what are what are one or some of your favorite moments from last year's season on the way to Omaha? Yeah, I, I have a lot. Um, I. This sounds so corny, but like I love our every days of practice being around the guys. But like if we're talking about like actual games, um, the the Maryland night game was pretty awesome in the regional because we had a six hour rain delay. And that was wild. Like anytime like you're getting up for a regional and you're hosting it and you're getting ready to play and then you have a six hour letdown where you're just sitting around trying to figure out when you're going to play. And we started at like 1045, I think 11 o'clock was first pitch at night. And we had about 2,500 fans show back up at 11 o'clock at night after a six hour delay. Like that was pretty awesome. Um, obviously there, there's some personal ties there. Like I coached at Maryland. We played in the Maryland regional last year. They knocked us out. My buddies are all coaching on the other side. Um, I know all their families and our families are friends. and I, I recruited a lot of the guys on the other side. So it's really surreal and wild to go back to back years playing the team that you were so involved with and was like every day of your life for five years. That was, that's crazy. There's a lot of emotions going on. So I'd be lying to you said if, if, if like that whole, that whole game was kind of wild for me. Um, sure. Pretty memorable. Um, you know, super regional winning it at home and like all the guys being on top of the dugout and the fans and like playing our kind of like Selly song and them all dancing on the mound and going out and putting up the sticker on the wall. It's pretty special. Um, my mom and dad got to be there. So that was pretty cool. My kids that were on the field running around. That was pretty awesome. Just like kind of being in Omaha during the World Series was pretty cool because as a coach, the, the Big East Championship was held in Omaha when I was at St. John's um, twice. Oh, wow. So I was out there twice for that. And then when I was at Maryland, the Big Ten Championship was there. 
Um, being in the Big East, we used to play Creighton at what used to be Ameritrade, and obviously now it's Charles Schwab. So been been there a lot, you know, but never been there for Omaha. So to see it and have have visualized it so many times, but what it looks like to be there and never be there during Omaha was so cool to see it like when it's actually alive. It, it's it's pretty awesome. Like it, it's very easy to see why people go to Omaha year in and year out, even if their team's not playing. Because it's like, mm-hmm. again, like I, I've referenced Brownie a bunch on this call because he obviously has impacted me greatly. Everybody that I, I've mentioned has impacted me greatly. But I remember I asked Brownie one time, like, what the College World Series was like. And um, he was like, it's like a giant country concert. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's like a country fest. I'm like, yeah, it's, that's exactly what it is. Like, it's yeah. like, there's just people everywhere. Like, everyone's having a good time. Like, it's pretty wild. There's There's not many sporting events like it. I feel like that go on for two weeks where it's a festival type vibe. You know, it's like a big time college football tailgating for two weeks all day. Like what other, what other thing is there like it? You know what I mean? And I get it. We're baseball people. So it's easy for us to say that, but what other events like that? The NCAA basketball tournament's not like that. I mean, it's cool in its own way. It's very awesome. Obviously. You know, the college football playoffs is awesome, obviously. But what other what other event is there in sport where for two weeks is a giant party? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's like part state fair, part college yeah. football, part, yeah, it's like, yeah. The, the city is just so incredible. Like, the city of Omaha, like, the people are amazing. And, um, you know, like even in the new stadium. The, it's 10 o'clock in the hotel, and you're walking down from breakfast, and there's a guy, like, jamming on the guitar. Everyone's drinking beers at like 10 a.m. on a Thursday. You're like, and like you're like in your ninth day there. You're like, what's going on? It's like a concert here every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, and it's so hard to get there, right? Like we all know that anyone that's coached or played in college baseball, it's just, you know, fortunately for me as part of the media, like you're going every year if you're in that gig. And, but I still like when I get to the gate in the Phoenix airport, usually I'm flying from Phoenix. And above the gate, it says Omaha. You're like, you get goosebumps every year. Like, cause it's so, it's so stinking hard to get there. It's just, yeah. it, and it's so special when you do. It's just it awesome. It is hard. It's surreal, really. I mean, like, I'm a big, like, I've, I've talked about visualization and goal setting a lot in here. And we talk about it all the time. Um, so you do it a lot. You start to believe that you're going to do it. And you've seen it happen in your mind quite a bit. But then when it actually happens, you're like, whoa this is kind of cooler than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think the coolest thing about Omaha is that it's cooler than you thought it was going to be. And then you're like, man, I want to do it again and again. And you really appreciate it. I think you, you, you really start to appreciate how hard it was to do it. And um, I, we talk about this all the time is like, if you don't have gratitude, like you can't get more of anything. Um, so we, we preach gratitude here quite a bit and, and being thankful for the things that, that come our way and couldn't be more thankful for how the time we got to spend with those players. Cause that was like the funnest team I've ever coached. I get it. It's easy to say when you're 54 and 12 and you're the number one national seed and you go to Omaha, like everyone's like, of course it was, you were winning, you had good players, like get Rhett louder. Uh, yeah, I get it. Well, like I'm telling you, like every day at practice was fun. Somebody asked me the other day, like, what did you guys play for? Like, we were just trying to play another game because we like being around each other so much. It didn't feel like it was too long. It felt like it went by really quick. And um, I just, 
that's all we want to do is like this upcoming year. Like we don't need to be that team. We need to enjoy being around each other as much as that team enjoyed being around each other in our own way. We don't have to be the same team. We don't have to play the same style. We don't have to have the same amount of wins. We need to enjoy being around each other and at the yard. And like, we really need to enjoy getting better. And if we do that, we'll probably reach our potential. I think John Wooden said that they, someone asked him one time what his favorite like season, what, he, what season he was most proud of. And he said his first year at UCLA. And he said his first year at UCLA because the team wasn't very talented and he felt like that they maximized their potential and they reached their full ceiling. And he said off that team, there was like two U.S. senators, a lawyer, a doctor, like it was like the most successful group of people he'd ever had. And I believe in that wholeheartedly. Like, I believe that like your goal should be able to maximize your team's potential. Again, going back to what Jason King said, you, 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 you can't control the wins and losses. You can't. So stop worrying about it. It doesn't matter. Like, that's not what defines you. What defines you is how you prepare, how you live your life, how you treat people, how you compete. Like, that's what defines you, right? And so as long as we do those things at a high level, I'm going to be happy. I'll be good, you know? When I get upset or when I, when I get crazy is when we have terrible body language, when we don't prepare hard when we're lazy, when we're disrespectful, when we're not appreciative. I get, I get, I get cranky when that happens. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, fair enough. Oh, man. This was great, Moose. I really appreciate it. This is a perfect place to end. Um, you know, again, like I was super excited for this conversation. It's so easy to see why you guys are – there's so much momentum around your program right now, which is awesome. Uh, so excited to see what this year looks like for you guys. You know, we didn't even talk about how you're running. You know, you guys had the best pitching staff in the country last year, and your home park is the most hitter-friendly park in the country, we, we, you know, hands down. Uh, no offense to the Wake Forest hitters, but, like, you know, that would – Well, I, I, know, I know we're getting signing off, but I'll, I'll talk about that briefly, right? So when I was coming here, a bunch of other pitching coach buddies of mine were like, dude, you're crazy. Like, why are you going there? Like, that's career suicide. I actually had, like, two or three – other pitching coach friends of mine say that to me. Yeah. And my response was like, well, first of all, Maryland's a hit a homer dome. Yeah, like it's true. like 350 in center. So I I mean it's not really any different. Second of all, it was like the other team, I, I'm not interested. I I have zero desire to lead the country in ERA. I could care less. Anyone that knows me knows I don't care. I mean I sell it now in recruiting, but I don't sure. actually care if we lead the country in ERA. I have no I care if we win or lose. And the way I see it is the other team is at a disadvantage, not us, because every hitter gets in that ballpark on Thursday night practice and their eyes light up and you got that little leadoff guy who's got like one pump in his career to start to lose balls. And now he's getting big front size going. He's out there like he's Domingo Ayala and he's like, you know, lifting and he's and he's trying to uphill everything and he's all out of his game and all the hitting coaches are like, hey, Stay through the ball, middle of the field, stay on the ball. And they're like, now they're all domed up, you know? So they're thinking about it. They're like, oh, yeah, we're at Wake. I'm, I'm going to get three pumps this weekend. They're already out of their approach. The opposing team's pitchers are like, damn, 302 down the line? That's short. They're already thinking about it, right? So I tell my guys all the time, like, you guys have the advantage. Look, we don't need to throw zeros up here every inning. If we give up three homers, but they're all solos, who cares? Bueno. If we hit three homers and, you know, we have you know, a two-run bomb, 
solo and another two-run, we win. Who cares? So we, we had to shift our mentality on that, you know, from like, stop worrying. I remember my first scrimmages, I was here at, at uh, Wake Forest. I hear, ooh, couch tater, couch, welcome to the couch. All they talked about was the couch. I'm like, guys, what's wrong with you guys? Change your perspective. Change your mentality. This is an advantage. This is not a disadvantage. Yep. You know how to play here. You know how important it is to track, attack the strike zone. You know how important it is to leave them to a solo homer. Who cares? Who cares? If, you, if you're going to beat us in our yard with us only giving up three runs, good luck. Right. That's going to be hard to do, you know? And if you do tip or tap, whatever, it's a baseball game, you're going to lose them. Stop worrying about it, you know? Yeah. So that's what we talk about a lot, really. Like, that's, that's how we handle the yard. So I don't even let my guys talk about the yard. I only allow them to talk about it as a positive. Yeah. Seriously. And I say to them all the time, like, hey, if we're playing a game of hitting homers, do you want to take our team and hitting homers or the other team hitting homers? Or like us, we'll, we'll strike them out. We'll get our – I'm like, okay, that's good. That's what we want. We're good. Right? So oh, that's, that's awesome. how I feel about the, the dimensions. I could care less. You know oh, I mean? that's great. Really well said, man. That's uh, and it's just it's so cool, Moose, to see your career like this blend. You've been around some great old school guys, and now this blend of the new stuff. I mean, just this conversation was everything I thought it would be. So again, really appreciate it. This this be so fun to watch you guys this fall and and this spring. For the listeners, um, every Sunday night we're doing this. Next Sunday night's guest, really pumped about. We're gonna have Ryan Fulmer, head coach at Oral Roberts. You know, they're a four seed that goes to Omaha. Only three four seeds in the history of college baseball have ever gone to uh, the College World Series. Oral Roberts is one of them, Stony Brook in 2012, and then Fresno State in, in 2008. So that'll be a real fun conversation. So let's sign off there. That's it. Everybody have a great week, uh, and we will catch you next time on the D1 Baseball Podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all handpicked from family farms, then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois.